Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Neil Garfield here, and this is May 11, 2017. I'm back. I had some sort of virus or crud that took away all of my voice part of the time and most of my voice the rest of the time. Last week we had some sort of technical problem that was has been semi-cured, and tonight we are on. Seems like nature was telling me to shut up but I won't. Good afternoon to those in the Western time zones and good evening to those in the East. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order to show up on my studio board that you are waiting with a question. Joining me tonight, see I still have it, are Charles Marshall and Bill Padalo, whose name I now proudly pronounce correctly after years of pronouncing it incorrectly. All of us should have a little humility. We can be wrong. I haven't been able to talk, but I have been reading and doing some of my usual writing. There are changes in the winds, but once again, we need to see if it it will stick. Back when I was predicting the tidal wave of foreclosures in 2006 and 2007, Many judges were following the old rules that pretty much operated for centuries, requiring the foreclosing party, even if not challenged in a judicial state, to dot their I's and cross their T's. I would also argue that the same elements must apply in a non-judicial state because the non-judicial state is not a way to get around or shouldn't be a way to get around the judicial requirements of due process. Foreclosure used to be denied until the bank got their paperwork right and convinced the judge that they indeed had a right to foreclose to protect themselves from incurring a loss on the debt in the sorry note for which the mortgage or deed of trust, was a contractual agreement to allow sale of the collateral to assure payment of the principal and hopefully the interest on the loan. Those were the old days. Back when everyone thought of foreclosure as the civil equivalent to the death penalty in criminal cases, I was roundly criticized for undermining confidence in our economy. 
Of course, what I was doing was simply telling people to restrain themselves and duck because there were incoming mortal, mortar shells about to rain on everyone's parade. Then the tidal wave came, just as I predicted, along with several other people, and lawyers started cropping up around the country defending some of the homeowners facing foreclosure, and if they raised relevant objections to the status of the foreclosing party as having standing, having the note, or having the right to foreclose, they prevailed. There were several decisions in Ohio, New York, California, and Florida where homeowners easily won, along with sarcastic comments from the bench about what the banks were doing. Shack in New York is an example of this. There were judges in Ohio and California who didn't hold uh, their words back at all. Then we entered the dark ages, when no matter what defense you had, regardless of obvious inconsistencies in the facts, documents, and representations made on and off record, homeowners were losing unless they litigated to conclusion with good trial lawyers who elicited the absence of any real transactions from robo-witnesses who were given the bank version of a strict and narrow script to follow and not told about anything else. Following that, we had the Age of Enlightenment, where the number of decisions in favor of homeowners started to rise, and that was followed by a dip caused by appellate courts who couldn't, and in many cases still can't, make up their minds what to do with a fraudulent and wrongful foreclosure because they're afraid of toppling the entire economy. By their version, it's okay to have the homeowner pay the bill instead of the banks who created the problem. And now, after years of digging for facts that were hidden from view and some facts that were known back in 2007 and facts that were even denied as to the, their existence or were claimed to be under cover of privacy, we are seeing more decisions for borrowers than ever before. Perhaps it is because the perception out there, thanks to the banks controlling many parts of the media, the perception is that the foreclosure crisis is over. Tell that to the people in New Jersey and other states where they are popping new highs in foreclosure activity. But with the perception that the foreclosure crisis is over, the state and federal courts have rolled up the carpet under which millions were unlawfully deprived of their homes to prop up a scheme that benefited only banks who were the originators of fraud. Today, we'll explore the facts and the law to provide assistance, free of charge, to lawyers and even pro se litigants who can follow up by seeking advice from an attorney licensed in the jurisdiction in which their property is located. I am broadcasting live from Duval County, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations 
to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. For those of you who have been and are continuing to donate, thank you. Without you, it would be difficult to be on. For those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number and not the number to call into this show, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show, if the blog <clears throat> has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Easiest if you go to the blog and hit the donate button. So let's turn first to Bill Padalo, whose work as a forensic analyst and private investigator puts him in the very top tier of professionals seeking the truth about these debt notes and mortgages or deeds of trust. Back in 2007, there were many foreclosure uh, task forces, if you will, uh, some named as such, where all the fatal defects in the foreclosure models were discussed, accepted, and then, unfortunately, forgotten. The transcript of one shows that there isn't an owner of, of the debt, note, or mortgage, and that even if there was, the closest thing you could come to having a real party and interest that's after real money is the servicer, not the trust, and the servicer is not the servicer's interest is not secured. So welcome, Bill. Welcome, Charles Marshall, uh, one of my favorite lawyers in the state of California, and to whom I go to for uh, advice and to uh, kick around ideas. Uh, Bill, tell us about. What happened back in 2007? Well, <clears throat> thanks again, Neil, for having me on. Uh, I was sent over a document in the last few days by one of my many followers who uh, do follow your your blog and some of the articles I write or whatnot. And uh, I, I want to thank so many people out there, first and foremost, for uh, sending me great tips and information on a regular basis. And uh, even though I don't get back to everybody due to time, I, I do want to uh, make a public uh, thank you for everybody out there who, who uh, sends me lots of good information. But <clears throat> I was reminded uh, and shown this document from Texas back in 2007 where the legislature had uh, instructed the um, uh, state to, to, to assemble a task force on foreclosure to talk about um, the issues and how to deal with what they obviously saw uh, was going to lie ahead um, with the onslaught of these foreclosures. And in reading through this this document that I sent you here prior to the show, and I'm going to be correlating an article more thoroughly on this at some point here in the near future, but what was very telling in this is that we have uh, a gentleman by the name of Mike Barrett, who <clears throat> some of those of you may uh, recognize that name from one of the larger foreclosure mill firms uh, operating in numerous states, the Barrett, Frapp, and Dapier uh, name uh, with some extended names on the end of that. But uh, anyhow, um, sort of plucking out some information out of this, he makes a very startling admission in, in, in their dialogue in trying to discuss what to do with uh, these foreclosures. And he states that 
in determining uh, who the owner and holder is of these loans. Uh, the fact that uh, securitization came into play, um, it was a virtual impossibility in 90% of all cases where an owner and holder of the debt uh, can be identified. And it's also uh, an impossibility to find anything within their servicing systems that's going to identify any authority document that simply says, uh, you know, I'm the owner or the investor of this particular loan, and I am going to hire you as the servicer to go forth and execute a foreclosure in my name. I'm going to give you the authority to do that, so on and so forth. And there's an admission here that that document, those types of documents, simply do not exist. And this is what you know, people such as myself who have been fighting in this arena for years, and, and you guys well know, uh, we've suspected from day one that these parties who are coming in and foreclosing have no idea who owns the debt. And this particular transcript admits to this. In fact, they state that the closest you're going to find to determining any ownership is going to be the servicer because they cannot decipher from that point who owns any of this stuff. And so for me, every day I come into work, to work, it's like Groundhog Day because I'm, I'm into my eighth year now of looking and investigating these documents, and there's, there's no change. Uh, the documents by Aquin, by Orion Financial out of Texas, you name them, there's a laundry list. They continue to put this garbage out there with forgeries, and it's, it all ties back to the fact of what we've all known and what, what they've admitted here. They don't know who owns any of this. You know, it, it reminds me of, uh, this also goes back pretty far, uh, in, uh, well, first of all, it goes to the topic of the fact that the courts are accepting presumptions in in lieu of real facts or real omissions that are pointed out by the homeowners. Back, I don't remember the year. Uh, I think it was 2008 or nine. Uh, there was an Oregon appeal, and somebody out there will probably know the case. Um, upon questioning, the attorneys for the banks admitted that they had no idea who the creditor was, nor did they have any idea of how to ascertain who the creditor was. They also admitted that MERS, Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems, does not meet the statutory definition of a beneficiary. I would add to that that based on uh, what went on in that case and many others, that none of the beneficiaries that are on uh, the deed of trust in um, uh, non-judicial states meet the definition of a, of a real beneficiary and that the um, filing of a substitution of trustee is in reality a self-serving document by which a party designates themselves as a beneficiary, and from that point on, the case goes forward. 
And I argued many times that the primary document in non-judicial states to go after is a substitution of trustee. Most lawyers didn't agree with me on that, but those that did ended up winning their cases. Some of the other ones won also. But I think that realizing that these facts were completely aggregated back in 2007 before the crash and the in Texas, just like everywhere else, they didn't really do much to prevent the damage that they knew was going to happen. Well, Neil, I think it's uh, worth noting that there's there's a lot of information in this particular transcript, but they addressed and knew, and the judges who were in on this discussion, they knew that there were no witnesses who could come forth with any personal knowledge and attest to the validity and, and attest to the verification uh, as to who owns any of this stuff. They, they knew that going forward. And that's, that's what's really, you know, disgusting uh, about when you read this uh, of how special interests really were allowed to sit in and, and to voice their opinions and to, to voice uh, what they thought and how this should be handled in directing policy to the judiciary. Uh, and, and in doing so, I mean, due process, and this is what we've been screaming for years, all, all semblance of due process and and justice, everything went right out the window for for the sake of you know keeping the dockets unclogged and for for efficiency reasons, and of course you know the number one denominator being greed. Um, but also, they talk about, and you've said this when you talk about substitutions of trustees and whatnot, is that they also uh, were were concerned about the number of power of attorneys and attorney and fact documents that were being uh, laden into these foreclosure cases already in 2007. And they, they state right in there from some of the judges and lawyers, they knew that this was a problem and that uh, that could very well be a, um, a defense for most homeowners in a foreclosure setting, that they would come in and start challenging these attorney and facts and POAs. And, that again goes into the layering of, of, the, of, of papering the court with this with this nonsense. But uh, uh, I'll let you chime in on that one. Yeah. Well, I just had to comment today on a particular case um, where the substitution of trustee is executed, uh, and I'm just reading from it uh, by uh, Ditech. Financial, LLC, formerly known as Green Tree Servicing, LLC, as attorney, in fact, for Everbank, which doesn't have an LLC or anything else after it. The point being that Ditech effectively went out of business and was later reconstituted twice, once through bankruptcy, and what is now Ditech Financial today has, in my opinion, no connection with the original Ditech, which was only an originator and not a lender anyway. 
And this DITEC financial, which is executed, this document is executed a, a little over a year ago, in 2016. So this DITEC financial, LLC, has at least giving them the benefit of the doubt. It has questionable connection with any other entity named DITEC, and there were other supposed name changes. And when you talk about the layering, if you look at this, you've got this Kelly Rowling signing um, and, and a notary that says that DITEC Financial is the attorney, in fact, for Everbank, but doesn't explain what Everbank has to do with the chain of title because it's otherwise not mentioned. And with all of these defects, and I could go into more with this, but with all of these defects, judges are saying, well, looks like it was executed with the proper formality, so there's a presumption of validity. Now, back in the old days, which I referred to in my monologue, there's not a judge in the world that would have accepted something like this. They would have said, well, who are these people and what do they have to do? You know, if you say you got an, you're an attorney, in fact, where's the power of attorney? And who gave it to you? And did that person have any interest in, the, in this loan? The judges, I, I saw many times when I'd go into court with bank attorneys, and frankly, I was one of them, I didn't have my papers in order. I was sent back to the office to get them in order. So the foreclosure was denied until I got it right. And if I couldn't get it right, I couldn't come back in. But today, uh, what? yeah. Yeah, Neil, I was just going to weigh in. Um, it's great to have you back on the radio, by the way. And now with the substitution of trustee issue, the way that's played out in, in California, and I think this is going to be true in, in all non-judicial foreclosure states, the substitution of trustee only shows up in the vast majority of cases. I would say it's probably going to be the case close to 100% of the time. Um, so it, it doesn't happen until the foreclosing party the servicer usually with the nominal trust behind it until that party is ready to go forward with the foreclosure sale. All of a sudden, even when it's years later, even when there haven't been recorded documents in the record related to the subject property for years, all of a sudden they do a substitution of trustee and it's to put in the party that will be doing the notice of default and the notice of trustee sale to follow that. So it's completely self-interested. The timing is not coincidental at all. And yet, as you say, there's been a trend for years now to treat these types of events, you know, benignly or almost administratively. But in fact, there was an agenda behind them all along. And I know from the progression in California law, the results were much more varied back in 2009, 2010, in terms of the litigation. 
and the big institutional law firms that now support and defend the big institutional banks and servicers, it's not that they didn't take any of those types of cases back then, but it was, it was considered uh, bad form to be involved in residential foreclosure cases. High-end commercial, probably, but regular mom-and-pop residential, no. There was not a, an institutional power of law firms the way you see now. And this whole crisis that was created completely changed, uh, as I think you're saying, Neil, the way courts handle these types of cases. I mean, basically hundreds of years of black-letter law and practice and common law has been disregarded, where, of course, historically you had to, to show individual knowledge and documentary evidence if you're doing something fundamental like taking up residential property to foreclosure. And then all of a sudden, literally within a few years, from 2009 to 2012, the institutional overlay that we see now was completely implemented. And we've, we've been fighting it ever since. Right. And well, the, there's, and the key, and there's, the, the key is to keep fighting. And, you know, with people like uh, uh, Bill Padalo, Charles Marshall, myself, and many others out there who are dedicated to this in the pursuit of truth as well as relief, fighting them is possible. But the problem is in our system, and there's not much to do about this that we can do as far as I can tell, um, you need money. And although most of us have whittled down the amount of time it takes to do things, both in preparation for litigation and in litigation, the fact is it still costs, you know, some real money. And that, that basically means that even in the case, and there have been thousands of these, where somebody was current, even by the standards of the note, which was probably defective, and even by the reports of the so-called servicer, which was probably not a servicer, even though they were completely current on, in every aspect, they got foreclosed anyway. And they were evicted from their homes. And the reason it happened is that for a lot of people, the mortgage payment is so significant in terms of a percentage of their income that they have no disposable income. And at this point, uh, the amount of credit available to those individuals is limited, although it's still available through credit card advances and things like that. But that doesn't necessarily fund the, the preparation for litigation. And in order to mount a credible threat that will result in a settlement or a judgment that's favorable to the homeowner, there's a lot of time, effort, and money that has to be invested. And I, I 
started off by saying you can't do much about it, but I still complain about it because I think it's just wrong that somebody can, can play by the rules, buy a house or refinance a house, and still get kicked out even if they did everything that they promised to do. Well, so, the the documents that I'm seeing, again, uh, like I, I alluded to, that this seems like Groundhog Day, but there is so much deception in these documents. We know why. We know why they're they're falsifying this stuff, why they're creating these things. But on their face, when I do, when I look at this, and I, I referenced this Orion Financial out of Texas, and I'll give an example. I have a fresh assignment right out of there in 2017 where I have a Connie Rigsby signing uh, the document as the caliber attorney, in fact, for Bayview Loan Servicing. Rigsby is the vice president of operations and the, uh, for Orion Financial. It's well documented. And the, and the CEO is this Emmy Weilman who created the document. That's pure deception. It goes even further when you look at the address of the assigner to Bayview Loan Servicing in Florida. It, does, that, it doesn't go to Bayview Loan Servicing. It goes to Bayview... Uh, asset holdings, a uh, whole other entity where they they jostle the addresses around, and and this is commonplace with this Aquan. I just want to say one thing for people to t- take a look out for because we mentioned it uh, on the show. But um, Aquan, when you look at some of the documents with their address in the upper left hand corner of their assignments, they always come back and say Aquan Loan Servicing with an address of 240 Technology Drive in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Well, when I researched Aquin, they're not registered in Idaho under that address. That address belongs to Securities Connections, Inc. And I, most of you that have followed uh, either David Dahan or my articles in the blog um, are familiar with the fact that that particular entity back yonder had approached me and solicited me to, to uh, backdate and back-notarize assignments on behalf of Washington Mutual on a 2002 loan. Uh, so I have, you know, personal first-hand knowledge of that entity soliciting me to, to, to fraudulently backdate assignments. But Aquin, I mean, it's this type of deception that they, that they put into these documents with false addresses, addresses that lead to uh, vacant parking lots. I mean, if people aren't – if you're not paying attention or you don't hire somebody such as myself to really dig into these documents – they are pulling the wool over everybody's eyes routinely, day in, day out. And I'll tell you, until somebody goes to jail as a deterrent, until someone like Connie Rigsby here gets called out on this and some handcuffs go on, there's no end in sight. Uh, this is just going to continue. And, and and all these settlements and consent judgments and all the billions they've paid is just window dressing because it's it's peanuts to what, what they're profiting in this business model of theft. Yeah, it's pennies on the dollar. They made trillions of dollars by stealing from initially the investors and then the homeowners. And and just to piggyback on what you said, one thing that popped into my head, I probably know others, is that American Brokers Conduit, A, is not incorporated. The one that's used in the documents is not incorporated anywhere. And the address for that entity that they show is a residence in Melville, New York. 
And and yet, American Brokers Conduit, if you were a lender, would you name your company American Brokers Conduit or anything conduit? <laughs> Why would you do that? And the answer is it's a great, pure, It's a great point, Neil. I mean, they're telegraphing that their only intent is to be an intermediary, that they aren't actually brokering real deals for parties. They're, they're strictly an intermediary for other institutional intermediaries, and they're not even playing themselves to the public, basically. Now, to, to, to tap things off with American Brokers Conduit, there is an American Brokers Conduit, Inc. in New York that has nothing to do with any of these loans. And they're pretty pissed off that their name was used. So the, the, the point I'm making here is with the help of a forensic analyst uh, like Bill, an attorney like Charles, you can drill down to these facts. And the object here is to make the judge as uncomfortable as possible in following their bias to the point where they're afraid they may look stupid. But you can only do that if you really drill down pretty deep. And it, it's, it's an uphill battle because the people who act, have the actual facts of what happened and what events really occurred and what transactions really occurred, those people who are the underwriters of the so-called securities that were sold to investors and who are also the master servicer in these paper trusts that have nothing in them, they are not part of the litigation. And attempts to join them have failed in most courts. But I would say keep trying. So, uh, well, Neil, I, I had an interesting uh, comment on a, on a client of mine who uh, informed me that he had actually made contact with an attorney for the investors in a, a Bank of New York Mellon uh, Countrywide Trust. And they actually started to compare notes, and it was amazing that she was very cooperative in wanting to work with that borrower to make the argument that that assignment to the trust is void because she represented the investors who had wanted no part of that non-performing asset being dumped into their lap at this stage, this many years after that trust closing. And it was kind of an obvious revelation. I mean, it's it's been a virtual impossibility to connect the the investors because here the whole you know, point of our uh, initial part of this show is we don't know who the investors are. But in some cases, when these investors actually come forward, you know, and the homeowner can actually maybe connect uh, up with the other side, it's a. I think that's a powerful um, uh, way to go after these these folks by putting their heads together. He's my client is hopefully, and I'm gonna I'm hopefully have a conference call coming up here very soon with that attorney to uh, construct a defense where they again want to come in and and assist my client in making that argument that the assignment's void. And I think that could be very powerful if that were ever to happen on a larger scale. 
Yeah, I don't know if it can happen on a larger scale, but I know it can happen on a small scale. The problem is that most investors, we think of them as people, and legally they are because they're, they're legal entities. But most investors are managed funds, and most of those are stable managed funds that are under strict investment requirements. So what you're dealing with, if, if the... If the fund manager of the retirement fund that he's managing for thousands of people, some of whom are getting foreclosed by themselves in that managed fund, if the fund manager were to take issue with the legality, validity, and authority in connecting the dots of chain of ownership and chain of transactions, et cetera, if they were to prevail on that claim, they would be forced to write down to zero all the mortgage-backed so-called securities that they own. And so there is a self-interest by investors to... Uh, to stay away from that. They're willing to sue for bad underwriting and other things, but they're not willing to sue for the main fraud, which was diversion of the money they gave to the underwriter, which was supposed to go to the trust and never did. Before we uh, run out of time, I wanted you to talk, Bill, about the cease and desist from the SEC relating to the Wilmington Christiana Trust. Sure. Um, well, that's that's a, a, another treasure trove of information in that document. But essentially, it goes back to uh, the fact again that uh, they can't trace down uh, and track down who many of these investors are, not just from the ownership of and the transferings of the notes and the mortgages and deeds in, in the uh, mortgage servicing systems, but the actual transfer agents. And now these are uh, folks such as Wilmington and the Cease and Desist or U.S. Bank Trust. Uh, many of the large institutions are registered with the SEC as transfer agents, and they're uh, tasked with the um, uh, duties of keeping track of the certificate holders and the registration and, and how who owns these things at any given point in time. And what's very telling from that cease and desist is that they uh, got caught uh, failing to file many of these uh, forms and registrations and, and to keep track of who owned any of uh, the, the certificates that they claimed to be the trustee for. And it kind of plays over as I started to dig into many of the other transfer agents that the ones that were complying with some of the regulations and filing their reports is that they uh, are admitting that they've lost the the, uh, the 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 ability to to name who the investors are, and I it's likely because of the fact that uh, the trading was so warp speed fast in all of this stuff. Uh, it's one sign and symptom as to why this happened, but um, but it's 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 a fact that. Again, more evidence. Not only do they admit they don't know who the owners are, you know, we have a case out of that one in California where the FBI and the DOJ came in and said, we can't even tra track this stuff. We have no idea who owns this stuff. And now you have SEC filings uh, and one entity at least getting hit um, for um, 
for for trying to evade the fact that they don't know who uh, owns any of this stuff. So <laughs> it's it's a mess. Well, as, it is a mess. As a former investment banker on Wall Street, literally Wall Street, I can shed a little light on this transfer agent thing. Um, the reason why the banks made themselves transfer agents for the purposes of what they called mortgage-backed securities, which were instruments that weren't mortgage-backed and are dubious as to whether or not they're securities. The reason for that is that the money from the investors went into the pocket of the underwriting bank, who in in turn made itself or controlled entity the transfer agent so that they could put the ownership of the certificates in what's called street name, which is to say their own name. And it's perfectly legal for them to send out a statement to the investors that says you have a thousand certificates uh, in the XYZ 2007 trust and at the same time uh, hold the certificates in their own name, which then enables, and here's the fraud, here's another part of the fraud, I should say, it enables them to show that the banks are the owner of the certificates. And that's why when the Federal Reserve was trying to prop up all these trusts and it was buying $3 trillion worth of these worthless mortgage-backed securities, they paid the banks instead of the investors because the banks were showing that they were the owners. And theoretically, the money would be passed on to the investors, but it never was, just like the insurance was paid to the banks and never to the investor. So the banks were making money hand over fist and then claiming a crisis, a loss, from the default of mortgages that they never owned and from the failure of mortgage-backed securities, which they never had a right to declare ownership to. Without being a transfer agent, they couldn't have hidden that so well. So um, we're close to running out of time here. Um, uh, 30 seconds or less. Charles, what do you think we can expect um, in the future in foreclosure defense? I think we are going to continue to see some wins for our side. I, I don't think we're at a place where the law is so stacked against us that we can't convince some judges. And I also think as a practical matter for for borrowers and homeowners, whether you're in a judicial or a non-judicial foreclosure state, if you have legal expertise, however you gather it, however you garner it, it's going to improve your settlement, the amount of time you have in your property, your prospects for prevailing, and ultimately getting a, a proper disposition. I mean, Yes, things are stacked against you, but it is not unwinnable. Excellent. 
Attorney Charles Marshall, number 619-807-2628, and Investigator Bill Padalo, 406-328-4075. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us once again tonight. Thank you, Neil. Th thanks, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.